0: What we have in the ALS space is definitely an emotional investment in every drug, where we want every drug to work. We handle this like we handle all of our other scientific decisions, where we get outside experts to review the data, to ask tough questions, to think about it, and then to make a recommendation and then we take that recommendation and see how we can translate that into action. <laughs>
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Earlier this week, the ALS Association filed comments with the FDA's Peripheral and Central Nervous Systems Advisory Committee recommending that it approve topherson a genetic therapy targeting SOD1 gene mutations for use in treating ALS. Association leaders are scheduled to provide oral testimony before the advisory committee on March 22nd. A decision from the FDA on Toverson is expected by the end of April. And joining me to talk about all this today is Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Uh, Dr. Thacker, thanks as always for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to talk with you, Jeremy. Neil, how did the association reach the decision it made to support approval of Toverson under the FDA's Accelerated Approval Authority?
0: That was a, a difficult decision. That's something we have to take very carefully. We have complicated relationships with every just about every drug that's under study today we've supported i think over 40 drugs that are under study for ALS treatment including tofersen as far back as 2004 i think our first grant was so we're still sorting through all of the different studies that have contributed to the the science that has led to this this spot and it looks like it's at least six different grants so we're not even clear on what our financial interest is in this drug, if any. If there is some, we would handle it in the same way we did with Reliverio, in in that if there is any royalty or incentive that comes back to the association, it would, it would go into our research program directly. The second thing, of course, is a lot of the bigger uh, pharmaceutical partners in the space are sponsors of the association and many, many other ALS groups and Biogen, which is the sponsor of Tofersen has been a partner with us on on many different things for a number of years. But I think the biggest issue that we have as staff and volunteer leaders in in the ALS space is that we have very personal connections to the disease. I know people who've been in the trial. I know people who've been in most phase three trials. Uh, When they tell me they have a personal opinion On whether a drug works or not. I'm trained as part of my academic training to discount that and to look at the data. And I I can do that. I'm pretty confident in my ability to be dispassionate in that respect. But it's hard when I think about how serious ALS is and how much I personally want this disease to go away and how much I want every drug to work. And so What we have in the ALS space is definitely an emotional investment in every drug where we want every drug to work. And that's not something that we can go to the FDA with. That's not something that, that can influence their decision. So we developed a policy and we put it online where we handle this like we handle all of our other scientific decisions, where we get outside experts to review the data to ask tough questions, to think about it, and then to make a recommendation. And then we take that recommendation and and see how we can translate that into action. And so that's what we did here. And we did that with permission and support of Biogen. They gave us information that we could use. And this is the same process that we did with Amilex and Relivrio, where we had independent reviewers look at that drug before we took a stance. And there have been drugs that have come up for review where we haven't gone through this process. And so we just never took a position. And in some cases, it wasn't necessary. In some cases, the company didn't take us up on our offer. But we did ask for Biogen because we know it's important and it's a little bit unusual of a drug. And so we did have an independent review and we went over the reviews carefully. We went over the evidence carefully. We talked with our volunteer scientific board and we came up with this decision to, to support approval of the drug. And you know, we're doing that, it, it's complicated because the drug did not meet its primary endpoints, its initial goals of the study. But as you go forward and you look at how people fare on the drug after a long time out, it appears that they're doing better than people who didn't get the drug as quickly. And so that's really important information. And then the other really important consideration for this drug is that it only applies to a small percentage of people who have ALS, only folks who carry the SOD1 uh, mutation. And so this becomes an ultra rare form of ALS, an ultra rare disease. And so to uh, conduct another full length trial, to start over again, to conduct a longer study is really, really difficult. And so that has to be another consideration and the accelerated approval pathway is I think an appropriate way to resolve that issue. There's an ongoing study, a prevention study, that's going to be able to give more information, but not for some time. And so that could provide the FDA with some certainty after it goes through this accelerated approval. So that was a long answer, but it's actually a pretty complicated question. The short answer is after careful review and consultation with outside experts, we are supporting approval under the accelerated pathway. And we hope the FDA will, will hear us on that, and we plan to reach out to them and speak to them
1: on that issue. Uh, I'm struck by a word that you used a moment ago, and that's the ultra-rare nature of the SOD1 mutation. It strikes me that dealing with an ultra-rare community has to put additional pressure on a regulatory agency like the FDA. Think about some of the flexibilities in terms of approval because you're... Knowing what I know about sample sizes, it's got to be difficult to get a representative sample when you're dealing with a really small population
0: it is really difficult. And to do this trial, you know, Biogen engaged a significant percentage of people living with, with that form of ALS, which is remarkable and, and difficult to do. And what we keep encouraging the FDA to do is to treat every drug and every disease as its own scientific problem and not to apply a cookie cutter standard across um, all diseases. And So far, I I think they're going to be open to that. I think it's also something our scientific community, the scientific community as a whole, uh, needs to keep in mind that every disease is different, every drug is different, and the consideration applied in a way that, that makes sense for that disease space.
1: We're going to be hearing from Dr. Tim Miller momentarily about what what we've learned about during the clinical trial process of Topracin, you know, but we're talking about this treating a mutation that affects a small, it just strikes me that this is a therapy that would be available and, and impactful for a small percentage of the population but are there learnings coming out of this can that can maybe shine a light on a path forward for other mutations for other therapies other gene therapies that could be coming into development
0: yes and that's really exciting because what i'm hoping is that this is the start of a of a really important wave in treatment for people with als you may remember jeremy i certainly do that the mapping of the human genome was an enormous event in scientific understanding, maybe the biggest scientific breakthrough or or growth in our knowledge in our lifetimes. And that happened in the 90s. And now we're just, it takes so long to, to take that fundamental knowledge and translate that into meaningful treatment. And as I mentioned, we did some of the first work on the method to silence a gene back in 2004. And this drug is one of the, drugs that came out of that technology, but there are others that are also in study now as well. So we're hoping, I'm actually very hopeful, that there are going to be other forms of ALS that have a strong genetic component that we're going to be able to treat using techniques like the one that's behind this Tofersen drug, as well as other ways of interfering with the pathologic process with someone's DNA that are under study through NIH that we help support through our advocacy program. So there's a lot going on. And I think one of the fundamental things for people with ALS or who have ALS in their families is to understand what their genetic status is. And so if they're a carrier of a gene, they may be able to enroll in a prevention trial. As I mentioned, there's an ongoing prevention study for SOD1 as well. Or if they have another gene where there isn't a prevention trial, if they should develop ALS, they know where what kind of treatment they can get. Or if they have ALS now and this Tofersen drug gets approved, it may turn out that Tofersen could be helpful to them as well. So I'll give you a link where we have information on how to get genetic counseling and testing. That is als.org slash genetic testing. And maybe you can put that in the notes or something so people can see how to get free counseling and testing. One of the, the issues people need to consider is that once they, need, they know their genetic status, it might affect their ability to get life insurance or long-term care insurance. And that's why it's really important that people get counseling. One of the things we did a couple of years ago is we worked with some scientists and genetic counselors to help develop counseling standards. And those are the ones that are being used today. That's really important. And we've also been working in several states on anti-discrimination bills. So genetic status can't hurt people's ability to get insurance. And um, several of us got to testify in Maryland a couple of weeks ago uh, to support a bill there. We We have other efforts around the
1: country. Dr. Thacker, thanks as always for your time this week. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, I recently had the opportunity to sit down with the lead investigator on the Topherson clinical trial team, Dr. Tim Miller, the David Clayson Professor of Neurology from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Let's hear what he had to say. Dr. Miller, thanks so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Uh, delighted to be here. Yeah. It's an exciting time in ALS research and in drug therapy. And, you know, as, as listeners are probably well aware, the FDA is currently considering, we talked about this a little bit at the top, uh, considering potential approval of Tofersin. And I want to start with a basic understanding of, of what Tofersin is and how it works. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to do that. The, the short answer is that mutant SOD1 builds
2: up and is toxic. It's a toxic protein. And Tofersen lowers the level or deletes the instructions for how to make that toxic protein. So that's what it does. It it erases those instructions.
1: So how did we get here? You know, walk me through what we learned from concept through clinical trials, open label extension. Where do things currently stand in terms of investigating how Tofersen works, its efficacy, its safety?
2: In terms of how we got here is, is, of course, a long story over the last I guess 20 years now of understanding how to use this class of molecules called antisense oligonucleotides that targets RNA. That's that set of instructions that that I was talking about. And this has been in development now, again, for the last 20 years. And one important step was understanding that this kind of drug, when put into the cerebral spinal fluid, the fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord, distributes throughout the brain and spinal cord. And then that gives us an opportunity to target the SOD1 gene to lower that gene product, to lower the levels of the toxic protein. So, But more specifically, in terms of how we got here more recently to the phase three trial or how we got here to thinking about torfersin being reviewed by FDA, this drug was tested in a phase one trial, really focused on safety, which then led immediately to the phase two, thinking about dose and range, and then phase three which is to test you know, whether the drug works. And that's where we are now. We finished the phase three trial. There were 72 participants on drug and 36 that got the placebo. They were dosed about once a month with this drug given intrathecally. So this is like a lumbar puncture delivered into the cerebral spinal fluid at the lower level in the back. And then we did a variety of, of measurements in people that received a drug versus you know received placebo first important point that came up was, did we lower levels of SOD1? SOD1 is the mutant gene that causes disease in this population. Did we change that? And the the answer to that is yes, very, very clearly. We can see that by measuring the levels of that protein in the cerebral spinal fluid. The second was looking at neurofilament. And this is slightly more complicated. Neurofilament is a protein that leaks out of damaged neurons. And it shows up in the blood and it shows up in the cerebral spinal fluid we're able to look at that uh, damage marker and what we found is around about 12 weeks that that level of neurofilament had greatly decreased and to us this shows that we've stopped the neurodegenerative disease process we've lowered levels of sod1 we know that that's what's causing disease and now we show with neurofilament that we've stopped that neurodegenerative disease process, or at least greatly slowed it down. You can think of that as putting the fire out, you know, stopping the cause in a way. Then the next part is a look at the clinical effect. This trial had a primary endpoint, um, all clinical trials do. That primary endpoint was at 28 weeks. We looked at the ALS functional rating scale. And at 28 weeks, there was a difference, those on trafersin doing a little better than those on placebo, but it was not statistically significant. The trial did not beat its primary endpoint, which at first, this was in October of 2021 when we looked at that data, was a little bit surprising. I think it's become much more clear to interpret that result and this trial as we look out at 52 weeks. So we get 88% of people in the trial decided to go on open-label extension. So I should explain what that means. At 28 weeks, participants in this study had an opportunity to get on the active drug. Nobody knows who was initially on the active drug versus initially who was on placebo, but everyone had the opportunity to get on the active drug. And the vast majority, 88%, decided to go on active drug. And then continued on that active drug. And then we followed them, looking at those who were on early start. Did they get to first and from the beginning? Or delayed start. Did they get it at 28 weeks in the open label extension? And then looked, you know, later time points. And we look at it 52 weeks. What you see is those on early start to a first end, clearly different than the those that are delayed start. You also see so uh, doing better. And then you see stabilization of function. If you look at the ALS functional rating scale, you see stabilization of function out of 52 weeks, especially if you look from between 28 and 52. You see stabilization of breathing. And then And I'm not showing you the slides today. We'll we'll have uh, a webinar opportunity to to talk about slides. But the the data that I really have enjoyed seeing the most are the improvement in strength that you see at 52 weeks and those on the early start. And to me, this is remarkable. This is not something we see routinely in the setting of uh, taking care of people living with ALS. Strength doesn't go up. It typically goes down. Some in some, it, it goes down, thankfully, slowly. In others it other goes, it goes down more quickly, but it goes down. And here we saw some increases in strength out at 52 weeks. So there are some other details of the trial that I'd, I'd be happy to, to talk to you about, um, of course, but that's really the kind of where we are and, and why we're at this point now, we say, wow, it, it does look like Teferson is having a clinical effect, benefit in this SOD1 ALS population
1: and Dr. Miller thanks for mentioning the uh, webinar we can share a link in the show notes so that that's scheduled for March 15th yes we we're in March now so thank you for that Yeah, March 15th you know we, we talked about the tofersen being in front of the FDA the, currently under consideration under the accelerated approval path how does accelerated b- approval work how is it different from how we normally think of something going through FDA for approval
2: sure and I'm I'm happy to talk about that I'm not I guess I should make it clear I'm not a regulatory expert. And of course, now we're, we're talking about this before the FDA meeting. In general, the FDA accelerated approval is, is for a, a product for a serious or life-threatening disease or condition. I think that ALS qualifies for that. Everyone listening to this podcast is gonna agree. And then it's is for they need to make a determination whether the product has an effect on a surrogate endpoint that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And the discussion for the FDA later in March will be based on neurofilament. We lowered levels of neurofilament. I I gave you my opinion that lowering of neurofilament uh, demonstrates a slowing of neurodegenerative disease process, and that will be up for discussion at the FDA, and that is the surrogate endpoint.
1: So with tofersen in front of the FDA, the FDA has convened its uh, central and peripheral nervous systems advisory committee that hearing scheduled for later in March. What would you encourage that advisory committee to ask? What questions should they be asking as they weigh whether to suggest tofersen for approval?
2: Well, it's hard for me to predict whether, you know, what the FDA is going to ask or what they're going to be focused on at the at the advisory meeting. I think on the fda website and some of the things i just told you the, those are the type of things that, that they need to consider i think step one is is it a serious or life-threatening disease or condition right they I have to consider that formally i don't think that's the hard part right yeah. that will be this is als and sod1 als i think it's 50 percent of the mutations in the united states are sod1 a5v and the median uh, disease duration for that particular group is 1.2 years so for them it's it's an extraordinarily serious and awful disease and SOD1 ALS and the rest of the the group is also a relentlessly progressive downhill course so this is a serious disease. To think about surrogate endpoints they'll need to think about the biological plausibility of the you know the relationship between the disease and the endpoint and then you know the likelihood to predict the desired effect the evidence to support that relationship. Those are all the things that that they're going to um, weigh in on and 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 think about. There is a large literature on neurofilament. Neurofilaments are structural proteins. They come in three different uh, flavors, light, medium, heavy, just exactly like it sounds. One, you feel one longer than the other, heavier than the other. Each of these has been examined in the setting of ALS. And what's striking about the measurements of these proteins is that they're clearly linked to progression rate and survival. And again, these are dozens of studies, not just a few, dozens of studies that, that have focused on that relationship in ALS, higher neurofilaments typically associated with faster progression rate and shorter survival, lower neurofilament, you know, the the, the opposite. So I, I think those, but those are the kinds of data that FDA will need to look at and, and review. These are, again, not studies that necessarily from me, or but these are studies that are done, have been done by the ALS community, ALS research community over the last 15 years, but a whole lot of studies in, in the last five to 10 years.
1: So, Topherson targeting the SOD1 mutation um, and, you know, we talked at the top with, with Dr. Neil Thacker about how many people that vex, like, you know, who, who is the, the kind of math there. So I guess where I want to go next is the question of whether this can translate to other or like, does this shine a path forward for other research? Can there be applications for what we've learned so far for other types of ALS? Sure. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about
2: the implications of this for other ALS. I think that one thing that I've learned from this study is that ALS is a treatable disorder. You'd say, you'd think that I'd already know that. I, I've had that belief for the last two decades in, in ALS research. I firmly believe that ALS is treatable. That's why I and many other researchers focus on ALS. And there are drugs that slow it down a, a bit. But this is a drug, at least in some people, and I think the evidence will, will continue to emerge, as you mentioned, the research continues. This is a drug that bends the curve. This is the drug that's showing people, some people uh getting stronger. And, um, you know, if you look at the beginning of the trial, <clears throat> end of the trial, 27% people in early start to first are stronger than at the beginning of the trial. To me, that's that's an amazing number. So I guess I've learned that ALS is treatable, and I think that's a really important concept for um, for people listening to this to this podcast, and a really important concept for the ALS research community. Now, having said that, we need the right drug, right? So, with SOD1 ALS, we've gone all the way upstream. We've changed the set of instructions that make the toxic SOD1 protein. Okay, that's all the way upstream. So, we need we do need the the right drug if we're going to bend the curve. The other thing we've learned about ALS from this study, in my opinion, is that um, it's going to take time to heal. If you look at the data, 28 weeks, wow, neurofilament went down. I think that the neurodegenerative disease process was greatly slowed down, but yet at 28 weeks, there was some difference, but not a lot. It's not until you look way out at 52 weeks that you begin you begin to see that healing process. And so it's going to take time to see these clinical benefits. It's going to take time to heal. So I, I think those are other learnings from this. Another maybe neurofilament because we get asked this question a, a lot now, there are there clearly could be drugs that work for ALS that don't change neurofilament. A good example of that might be a, a drug that's focused on muscle. It could be that stabilizing muscle will stabilize the motor neuron, which will in turn you know lower neurofilament. That's possible. but I wouldn't expect at first pass that a drug that improves muscle function in the setting of ALS would affect neurofilament or something that hits the junction between the motor nerve and the muscle or the way that the motor nerve uh, conducts electrical properties all those things could make ALS better i would not predict uh, would change neurofilament but if neurofilament moves i think we've learned something and it, you know if it goes up i think that's probably uh, overall not a good thing but if it and if it goes down i think that's Probably uh, predictive of success, and so I think that we've we, we've learned about using neurofilament as part of that readout, and I anticipate that neurofilament will uh, continue to be incorporated into clinical trials. And then the last piece, though this has already really been been launched, is the the blueprint uh, we've been talking about um, the SOD1 uh, Tofersen program, SOD1 antisense program as a blueprint for how to treat a number of other neurologic diseases, including non-genetic forms of ALS, and that delivering this kind of molecule called an antisense oligonucleotide in this way that can target a specific set of instructions is now being done in a number of other neurodegenerative diseases and uh, being done in other forms of genetic ALS and being considered also for non-genetic ALS. So it's a blueprint for how to um, use this type of therapy. And I think we'll continue to have important learnings for this kind of drug. Maybe there's two other points that I'll bring up. One is I want to highlight the tremendous effort from the community of people living with ALS with SOD1 mutations. There are many people that have participated in this program from uh, from the very beginning. And just want to highlight their efforts and, and their commitment. Again, this is not an easy study to have for them to participate in. So I really want to give a shout out again to the participants and to the families. Also want to recognize the site staff that did the work. A tremendous amount of effort from the sites and from a whole lot of people. And just to remind the community that this was an enormous team effort. And I'm happy to go through all the people that that were involved. And I think that um, hopefully those are are, are listed somewhere, but this was an enormous team effort. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to be the spokesperson for this large team, but again, a large team behind this. I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be in ALS research. And it goes back to the point that I uh, made earlier. This is, I do think, and again, this is, you know, this, my, my opinion That this shows us that als is treatable yeah and that concept is so uh, um so important for the many people that are focused on als research which is wow we really could have an impact if we find the right drug and also the people living with als which is wow there might be something coming through that could really bend the curve i don't know what i don't know what the next one will be for you know the next drug coming through i don't know what that'll be for non-genetic forms of als but I'm confident that it's out
1: there. I wanna thank my guests this week, Dr. Tim Miller and Dr. Neil Thacker. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And while you're at it, rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post-production by Alex Brower, production management by Gabriella Montequin. supervised by David Hoffman. That's gonna do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.